listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. One hundred and sixteen episodes. My goodness, it's getting out of hand. I'm not even tired. We're we're gonna keep going. Yes, indeed, it's the Fret Files podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I'm just a I'm just a humble guitar mechanic. Over twenty five years of experience building and repairing guitars. Melissa is not here with me. I know, I know, you're sad about it. Uh, it's just me tonight. So. You've got that to look forward to. No, Melissa is busy. What can I say? We're overwhelmed, actually, with work, both of us. And the podcast needs to be done. You know, the deadline is I I do them on the 1st and the 15th. And it's time to do the podcast, and she's busy. So I'll soldier along without her. That's fine. Uh, We have a lot to do. I'm not going to go into much, uh, you know what's on my bench and whatnot, other than, I will tell you, I've, I've been working on some fun guitars, really fun guitars. But let's do, uh, let's do some uh, guitar news. Guitar news. It has been brought to my attention by an acquaintance that Scott Freelich has passed away. And... I'm months late in announcing this. I did not know. Scott Freelich was uh, a guest on the podcast a couple of years ago. I think it was episode 56 or episode 58 or something. He was making guitar uh, neck heaters, a neck press, you know, a neck heating iron. And I interviewed him about that and just about his career and about, about repairing guitars. Uh, and I've been informed that he passed away, and I just wanted to make note of that, and uh, I've got his obituary here. He he passed away. He was 66. Scott L. Freelich passed away uh, April 15th, 2020. I don't know what of. Uh, I hope it wasn't COVID, but I guess at this point it doesn't really matter. He passed away. Scott Freelich, a musician whose expertise in restoring and selling vintage musical instruments earned him an international reputation. He died April 15th in Rochester. He was 66. Clients of his company, Top Shelf Music, included Van Halen, ZZ Top, The Black Crows, Randy Bachman, The Goo Goo Dolls. He also started and for several years hosted the Buffalo Friendship Guitar Show, the area's first exposition for collectible instruments. Uh, it goes into his early life. He grew up on Long Island. He went to university in uh, Buffalo, New York in 71. 
During his first semester, he performed for the first time on an album. He also fell in with Ron Gordon, a luthier who repaired guitars for local music stores. They shared expertise for several, several years, and he played with Gordon's folk group, Payday, at the Buffalo Folk Festival. I started buying and selling vintage instruments then, too, he told Buffalo News reporter Michael Levy in 1989, mainly, mainly because I liked their sound. He performed with several bands during his college years, uh, the group Trigger Happy, and he uh, shared the stage with Weather Report and Herbie Hancock. At UB, Mr. Freelich abandoned engineering and majored in music for two years before graduating in 1976, the year I was born. Uh, with a bachelor's degree in management. Newly married to his college sweetheart, he turned away from thoughts of becoming a touring musician. Instead, he performed with party band Pipe Dreams. <laughs> I like that name. Uh, recorded jingles as a studio musician, and uh, he repaired guitars for customers he inherited from Gordon when Gordon moved out of town. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to touch base on this. Um, he he uh, was a friend of the podcast, and uh, I was happy to have interviewed him, and got, I got to know him just a little bit there. And it's sad to hear of his passing, and I just wanted to uh, just wanted to note his passing. And uh, for the second half of this show, I'm going to replay that interview from 2018, talking to him about neck heating irons, and uh, he was the only one that I know of, he was the only one making them anymore. But I have, I possibly have on the horizon a source for neck heating irons, and we'll get into that, you know, in the not-too-distant future. So uh, keep an eye out for that, because uh, I've, I'm going to have some annou an announcements about that. Uh, and then I will replay his interview for the last half of the show. Uh, in other news... An astute listener named Phil sent me this article, and I found it interesting. It's from the Scientific American uh, by Priyanka Runwal on October 28th, 2020, in the Scientific American, Flooding and a Wood-Boring Beetle Threaten Supplies of Storied Swamp Ash for Electric Guitars. Once cheap and readily available, swamp ash became an integral part of Fender's DNA over the decades, says Mike Bourne, former director of wood technology at the company. But earlier this year, an acute shortage forced Fender to announce it would move away from using swamp ash in its famous line of Stratocasters and Telecasters, reserving the wood for vintage models only. Okay, so they, they still are going to use it, only just for, uh, for certain models. Hmm, okay. Fender blamed the dwindling supply on longer periods of flooding along the lower Mississippi, which is endangering saplings and making it harder for lumber companies to reach standing trees, as well as the looming threat of an invasive tree-boring beetle. Another renowned U.S. manufacturer, Music Man, raised similar con sourcing concerns in 2019, which the company described as having one of the worst harvests in recent history. Green ash, I guess they call it green ash. I've always, I don't know. Anyway... Green ash is a fast-growing species, and it has adapted to seasonal flooding, but lengthening periods of high water can still mean trouble, especially for seedlings. If you're talking about an early-growing season flood that flushes out in a couple of weeks, it's not really a problem for ash, says Brady Self, a forestry specialist in bottomland hardwoods. 
at the Mississippi State University Extension Service, but they are not geared to withstand year after year of long-duration floods if the water stays on for months and at a time when the seedlings just don't have their heads above the water, they might have trouble surviving, Self says. Lee Jones of J.M. Jones Lumber Company in Natchez, Mississippi, says he has witnessed some damage. The river has been up for so long and for so much that it's killed a lot of trees, he says. Another threat is also lurking around the corner. The emerald ash borer. The larvae of this invasive beetle native to Asia tunnel through wood and disrupt the tree's ability to transport water and nutrients. Since it was first spotted in this country, in Michigan, in 2002, the pest has spread to 35 U.S. states and five Canadian provinces and killed millions of native ash trees. My God. I think it's the most rapid-spreading insect we've seen attacking trees in the U.S., says Jennifer Koch, a forest service biologist. Man, you'd think there's something they could do. Uh, but when the, you get an invasive species like this, with no, uh, when they don't have any natural predators, uh, it can just go unchecked. There's got to be, I mean, well, how can you fix this, you know? What do you introduce a bug that eats that beetle? But then what's that What's that bug going to do? <sighs> the emerald ash borer has not reached the lower Mississippi floodplains, but Koch says it's only a matter of time until the beetle does so. Aware of this threat, several lumber companies started harvesting any adult swamp ash trees they could find in areas selected for annual logging in 2015. Previously, they would limit the take to about 30% of adult ash trees in those designated spots. Koch says the decision makes sense under the current circumstances, though it leaves fewer trees for the future. So there really is a crisis here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay optimistic that I'll still be able to get good and lightweight ash in the future, but it's increasingly looking like that's not going to be the case. That's me talking, not the article. Back to the article. There are a handful of replacement options, including red alder. <sighs> okay. Including red alder, which is native to North America's west coast. Since the late 50s, Fender has used alder to make many of its guitar models, but many aficionados think Ashwood's blonde finish and open grain make for a prettier-looking instrument and for nuanced differences in sound tonality that sets it apart from alder. Ash has a very fast attack. Think of a bright clap, says Brian Swer <laughs> Brian Swerdfinger. Swer Brian Swerdfinger. Swerdfinger. Sorry about your name, Brian. I just slaughtered it. Let me try again. Brian Swerdfinger, vice president of Fender's Guitar Research and Development Wing. Alder has a warmer, softer attack, still a clap, but it's rounder. I don't know. Some people might disagree. Koch and other researchers are trying to breed green ash and other ash species that might resist the emerald ash borer and replace decimated tree stands. The project will take decades, but with problems continuing largely unabated, future flooding problems in the bottomlands are unlikely to wane. I can adapt to a new wood, Kotzen says, but I'm much more bothered by the environmental issue. Yeah, it's troubling. I don't know what we'll do. I mean, that's my preferred wood that I use for guitars. I have a little bit of a backstock of it, but not not much. I'll definitely run out in the coming year. 
And will I be able to get more? I don't know. I hope so. But uh, I guess it remains to be seen. You know, if they're trying to develop a uh, a, a species of ash that is um, uh, that can withstand the emerald ash borer, that would be really good news. But uh, I don't know. I'm not. I I remain optimistic, but um, probably <laughs> I'm I'm probably being naive. I just don't know. Well, we do have some phone calls to take, so uh, let's do that. Eric Daw, Dave Fowdy in San Diego. Just catching up on some behind shows, and I think I heard 109 about the rattling loose truss rod. Mm. I've fixed them many times. Tell me how. It's an easier procedure than you think. Okay. You, can, uh, you have fingerboard dots. You can pull two out in the middle of the neck around the seventh fret. Get a large plastic syringe that holds mm, a half ounce or ounce of fluid. Get some flowable silicone at the auto parts store for sealing windshields. Mm -hmm. I thin it out a little more with some, well, it's wax wash by Mohawk. And you pull two dots out, drill a big enough hole till you hit the truss rod, start flowing it in, start working the rod, and it'll come up the other hole. And let it sit overnight, and the rattle will be gone. If there are not fingerboard dots or inlays that you don't want to take out, you can also go under a fret. Hope that helps. It does. I also have some ideas about a guy that has some problems with his binding seating. We can chat about that someday, too. Love your show. Trying to participate. And have a good one. Later. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's great. Yeah. No, that's really great. <clears throat> Thorough and effective. That's good stuff. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Hey, Eric. This is Miles Marlowe from Arlington again. Uh, thanks so much for your help before. I have a couple questions about guitar tuners, because I watched your Instagram video where you were packing white grease into that, I think it was a go-to, go-to mm-hmm. tuner hole. Got me wondering about it, and it older guitar that I have, uh, Gibson from the 60s with Clusons, and I probably should give that some white uh, grease love as well. Mm. Anyway, uh, maybe for its 50-year service inspection. Second question, though, was about open gear tuners. Do you do the same thing? Is is there anything different about that? Should you just grease them periodically? Mm. Um, But more generally about tuner quality, where you notice it in real life. Uh, For example, I have this Squire baritone guitar and all the hardware there is pretty medium to low end for example the tuners often i start to slightly adjust it uh tuner and but it feels like it's not doing anything not catching right off the bat i'm not hearing any pitch change but then it starts i was just wondering is this kind of the, what the a prime characteristic of a less than stellar guitar tuner is uh anyway would white grease help there thanks so much talk to you soon bye Cool, thank you. Um, there's a few things that can cause that problem. Uh, I'll take your last question first. When you're t- when you're turning the uh, button on a tuning machine and nothing's happening, it could be the string hanging up in the nut, and a little bit of graphite in the nut slots will cure that problem, uh, unless the slots are pinching the strings, in which case you need to uh, uh, fix that first. But... Um, yeah, that's a very typical problem of 
strings catching in the nut. Uh, but it also could mean a sloppy tuner. You know, I mean, it's uh, it just depends on uh, what's causing the problem. But yeah, tuners can get sloppy, absolutely, and they'll get just a little bit of play before they engage. It's not the end of the world. I, you know, as a collector of vintage guitars, I've learned to just live with that on many of my favorite old guitars because I don't want to swap out the tuners. The tuners are original to the guitar, and it would hurt the value to swap them out. So I don't I don't really mess with it. And I just know that uh, the tuners are a little bit sloppy, and I live with it. Packing any grease in there really isn't going to help because it's not an issue of uh, lubrication. It's just an issue of sloppiness. So uh, the Instagram video that you were referring to, yeah, I was packing grease in brand new, modern, Goto, Cluson copy tuners. And the reason I've been doing that is because I've been having trouble with those tuners recently. Uh, brand new tuners, and I, the first time I string them up, they get sloppy. And I think what's happening is they have a little nylon washer inside the tuner that, um, you know, one on each end of the worm gear. And I think what happens is if, uh, if, if you, if there's too much tension going on, when you, when you turn the, uh, when you turn the knob, instead of turning the gear, it will just crush one of the nylon washers and just rip it up. I think that's what's happening. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, if I grease them first, that won't happen. The old Clusens don't have a nylon bushing in there. They have, you know, metal washers in there. And even though they they can get sloppy, old Cluson tuners can get sloppy, they don't have that particular problem of, of, <laughs> of uh, being a brand new sloppy tuner. That really... It's been difficult for me to find tuners that I'm super happy with lately. I've been trying different alternatives. I've been trying the Cluson tuners, uh, the actual, you know, branded Cluson tuners. It's a different company, but they bought the name, right? And they're remanufacturing those. Those are decent. I I do really like the way the Goto tuners look. They just look really good. And they've, they never used to let me down, but just lately I've seen one too many that get sloppy right out of the box. So what I've started doing is packing them with grease before I even string them up, before I even turn it once. And that, so far, seems to have stopped the problem of them getting sloppy. Uh, so that's why I'm greasing them. You really, you don't need to grease vintage tuners unless they're getting stiff. At least I wouldn't. It, it It's not going to hurt anything. If you do, just don't over-grease them or over-oil them because you don't want uh, a petroleum-based something or other getting into the finish and because it'll it'll seep into the lacquer checking and then it'll seep into the wood. You just don't want to overdo it. So be careful there. On open back tuners, uh, no, I wouldn't use grease on them. I, I wouldn't even use oil on them. What you can do is uh, blow them out with either canned air or an air compressor and then use a dry Teflon lube. 
like like they sell for uh, bicycle chains. Dry Teflon lube. That's what I'd use on open back tuners. Grease. If you grease those, that's just going to attract dirt because there's no cover. It's going to attract all kinds of dirt and yuck, and you don't want that. So, um, and, you know, old open back tuners, um, they don't tend to have problems. Oftentimes it's a, it's a brass gear and a steel worm gear. And the reason they do that is because there's a lower friction, um, what do you call it? You know, like a lower friction coefficient between those two metals. So it's rare to have to lubricate them. You can, like I said, just don't overdo it. If you really want to use like just one drop of three-in-one oil or, or sewing machine oil or something, go ahead. But seriously, one tiny drop per tuner is plenty. So don't overdo it. Um, I'm not really in the habit of greasing or oiling vintage tuners. It's just not, it, I just don't. <laughs> I just don't. But thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And uh, I think we've got some uh, some emails to answer. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Eric and Melissa. Oh, sorry, pal. Melissa's not here. When checking a, t- a guitar neck to see if it's straight, I've seen people sight guitar necks from the headstock looking down towards the body, and I've seen people look from the body towards the headstock. Hmm. Which do you do and why? Is one preferable over the other? Are you looking for different things in these two different scenarios? Thanks. That's from Ed in Kansas. Ed, thanks for writing into the show. Um, when I'm looking down a neck, when I sight a neck, I look from the headstock down to the body. Uh, yeah, I've seen people look from the body up too, and I've, you know, I've done it too. I mean, a lot of times that's just where you are, and you're like, there's a guitar case with a guitar sitting in it, and you can just, you know, bend down and look at the geometry of everything and see how it's doing. But no, if I've got a guitar in my hands and I'm picking it up and I want to sight the neck, I'll look down the headstock end toward the body. Uh, I guess I don't think you'd see different things. Looking from those two different angles, I don't know. No, I know. I I really don't. I really don't think you would. It's like a. I've wondered. You know, I've seen people. I've seen people who uh, habitually sight the other way, and I've wondered if it's like a, uh, uh, like some kind of a cool guy thing, like a like a tricky way to light a cigarette or something. You know, like look at me, I'm different. I'm looking at the neck the wrong way. I don't know. Either way, you want to look, and either way you're used to is fine, but I I always look down the headstock side. Thanks for the question. Next. Hi, Eric. Love the show. And hello, Melissa. Oh, I'll tell her you said hello. I've done a lot of fret jobs with the fret press arbor, but I'm going to be refretting a neck with a compound radius, 7 and a quarter inch to 10 inch. Is there a way to use my fret arbor to cheat and do a compound radius, or do I need to hammer the frets in? Any advice would be much appreciated. Thanks. That's from Ken in Denver, Colorado. Um, yeah, Ken, I would, if you're doing a compound radius, I would, I would do the traditional hammer them in. Uh, your fret arbor has a dedicated radius on whatever call you're going to use, and uh, 
it's not, <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, yeah, I would, yeah, I, the, I'm trying to think if there is a way to cheat it, but no, there's not because you're going to, it's going from seven and a quarter inch to 10 inch. And, you know, in the middle, it's going to be like a, uh, like a, you know, eight and a nine inch radius and a nine and three quarter inch radius and, you know, all the way up to 10. So, um, no, uh, you're going to have to hammer those in. Thanks for the question. Hello, Fret Files. At what point is a guitar a lost cause? I have a $500 Alvarez acoustic and the neck joint is failing. There's a big gap there and the action is high. Is this guitar a lost cause or should I try to get it repaired? I'll send a pick. Thanks. That's from Ted in Tacoma, Washington. Thanks, Ted. And I did get your picture. Uh, he sent he sent a picture, and I'm sad to say it's a little bit blurry, Ted. Um, so I can't really tell a whole lot what's going on, but I can see there's a gap there where the neck joins the body. It's it's a lower end acoustic. Uh, I mean, being an Alvarez, I I don't know if that's a dovetail joint or if it's if it's doweled on or you know what the deal is. It's, sure, it can be fixed, uh, but it's probably you know if you were to pay a guy like me to do it, I I would I would want to take the neck completely off and clean up all the old glue, and then put it back on so that I know that there's a good glue bond, and that might be a that might be a hairy operation because God knows what glue they used. It's I guarantee you it's not hide glue. It's probably I mean it could be epoxy. I don't know. Whatever it is, it failed unless, you know, unless maybe just the neck, the block is cracked or I don't, something's, something's very wrong with the neck joint for it to fail like that. And yes, it could be fixed, but if you're, if you're going to pay a guy like me to fix it, you're probably going to be approaching the cost of that guitar, you know, three, four, five hundred bucks. So eh, I'd probably just buy a new one. That's me. That's me. You know, but hey, maybe you can find somebody to fix it that'll uh, that'll give you a good deal and, and do a good job. Ask around, Ted. Okay, this one's from Bill. Whenever I drop my guitar off to my luthier, he acts like it's the biggest burden in the world and tells me how busy he is and tells me that it's going to be a few weeks before he can get to it. It's tiresome, and frankly... It seems like bad customer service to me. Are all luthiers like this? <laughs> Is this like a thing that you guys all get together and plan on doing and then laugh about? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. What's the deal? Why can't I get same-day service on a setup or an appointment like a doctor's office? That's from Bill. Bill. Look. Bill, look. I don't know who your luthier is or where you are, or, but this is a common thing. When when someone drops a guitar off to me, now first of all, I, I hope you're, you're luthier, I hope you're exaggerating his bad attitude. I try not to have a bad attitude, that's for sure, but I will tell customers, yes, I'm, you know, if I'm busy at the time, I'll say, you know, thank you for bringing me some work, but I am, you know, pretty overwhelmed right now with a mountain of guitars and I'll get to it when I can and I'll give them a timeline. But, um, see the problem is when you drop your guitar off to your luthier, 
there is a line of guitar cases somewhere in the shop, and your guitar is going to the end of that line. And that's why you can't get same-day service. Um, shops with same-day service, uh, that, to me, that's a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> I'm sorry if if you uh, if you pride yourself on same-day service for a setup or something, if you're a luthier out there who does that. But listen, uh, that's not really... Yeah, it's not really a thing. I don't think. Now, I don't know, because I'm on the other end of it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I don't often drop my guitars off at luthiers, so, so I don't really know. But um, I will tell you that uh, you know you could probably get it faster service if you took it to some you know kind of jiffy, jiffy, jiffy luth, <laughs> like a jiffy luth uh, box store. You could have a salesman with a pocket knife do a setup on it. That'd be good right? That's not what you want. You want to take it to a professional, Bill, and professionals are busy. And the reason they're busy is because they're good. So maybe um, talk to your luthier about his bad attitude, but thank him for his work and uh, be patient. Hopefully you have more than one guitar and you can do without your guitar for a week or two. Thanks, Bill. Hello, Eric and Melissa. I love the podcast, especially when you tackle any of the many myths about electric guitars. I have a question about nitro and poly. Like many, I prefer a nitro finish. However, my preference has nothing to do with tone, but more to do with the fact that I like a finish that shows it's being used. The cracks, the chips, and erosion just add to the guitar's character, in my opinion. With that being said, do you subscribe to the idea that nitro finishes give a guitar better tone because it allows the wood to breathe, whatever that means, resulting in a more open sound and greater sustain, or is this just more guitar hokum? I have another question as well, if you have time. Zero frets. I've read many swear that they are the way to go and that all guitars should have them. At the same time, many are against them, saying that they wear out and then need to be replaced, though people have also said that's malarkey. What are your thoughts on zero frets? They look cool either way. Thanks. That's from Will in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Thanks, Will. Zero frets are a thing. You know, Gretsch uses them often. I don't like them. I don't like them. I'm just a, I'm a Fender-centric, Gibson, Martin-centric guy, and zero fret, frets, to me, uh, they here's where they got a bad reputation. Zero frets became popular when lower-end guitar companies realized that when you have a zero fret, you don't have to dial in the nut very specifically, just as long as there's slots in a piece of, you know, plastic there to hold the strings in place. The slots in the nut don't really have to be the right depth uh, like they do when you've got, you know, a proper nut with a first fret. When you've got a zero fret, the nut is simply a string guide. And then the the strings rest on the zero fret. So it became a cheap and easy way to make a guitar. And so many really cheap guitars have zero frets. And I think for that reason they fell out of favor because they became associated with cheap guitars. So um, it's hard to separate them uh, from low-end guitars in my mind. And really... I just like 
I just like a traditional nut. Just a normal nut. That's what I like. So that's that question. I know we've talked about it before, I think, in the podcast. At least I uh, seem to remember that. But there you go. There it is again. And nitro and poly, we've certainly talked about that plenty of times on the podcast. Look, most nitro finishes are over some kind of either a like a poly sealer or a poly base coat. And so this this uh this belief that nitro helps the wood breathe or something is just not true. It's just not. Um but I'm with you. I like the way they look and uh does it add to the sound? Well, like my buddy Nat likes to say, we do 90% of our listening with our eyes. So does a nitro guitar sound better? Yeah. <laughs> if I'm looking at it, it does. <laughs> uh, so make that make of that what you will. Hey there. I recently tried out some relicking on a telly bridge. I did the old expose it to muriatic acid fumes thing for a few hours, and one thing I learned was I should have removed all the screws. First, as the acid fumes caused those to rust up and freeze pretty bad. Nothing a bath in croil wouldn't fix. Oh yeah, croil. Croil is good stuff. Uh, nothing that a bath in croil wouldn't fix except for one little set screw in one of the saddles. I rounded out the hex head trying to turn it too hard. Fortunately... The stuck screw was protruding out the bottom. I was able to grab it with some angle nippers and turn it out through the bottom. My question, though, is, is there a good screw extractor out there for this job? What do you use? I know relicking is not repair, but have you ever had this happen, or do you know how to take the screws out before the acid treatment, or have you ever tried that method? Discuss, please. Thanks again for keeping my brain in the guitar repair game at this time. That's from Dean in Bow, Washington. Good old Bow. Bow, Washington. I had to look this up once because uh, I was just curious. I've never been there. It's an unincorporated, you know, community uh, of about 4,000, 5,000 people. That's where Dean lives. I don't know. You don't care. But Dean's questions are much more important. Uh, first of all, in uh, uh, on your relicking... I don't use muriatic acid for that very reason. It seizes up parts and rusts them, and I don't like it. So I use vinegar. I I only use nickel hardware, and I suspend it over vinegar fumes. And it just turns a nice kind of greenish cloudy tint, and it doesn't seize up screws. So that's what I use. I don't use the muriatic acid. I, 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 I just don't use it for that very reason. Um, that method will not work on Chrome uh, hardware, but uh, I don't use Chrome hardware anyway. I like the look of nickel. Uh, the best screw extractor, uh, there's a company called Vampliers, right? Vampliers, the world's best pliers. Screw extractor pliers to remove rusted and damaged and specialty screws and nuts and bolts. Uh, you can get them on Amazon for, I think, you know, 30 or 40 bucks. I get the minis, Vampire Mini, V-A-M-P-L-I-E-R-S. That, that'll work wonders for taking stuck screws out. So that's, that's what I use. What was his other question? <laughs> I think that was it. Was that it? 
Yep, I think so. Alrighty, thanks so much for the questions. We're going to take a break, and then we'll be back, and I'm going to replay the uh, Scott Freelich interview just as a tribute to Scott. I was just real sad to hear that he passed away. Uh, we do mention him selling neck presses, neck heating irons, and we do mention his email address several times. Obviously, you can no longer buy one from him, and don't try to email him because he has passed away. Obviously, I mentioned that, but uh, I wanted to replay this interview just as a tribute to him, and uh, yeah, rest in peace, friend. <sighs> Made me sad. <clears throat> Which is a just the perfect segue for a commercial, of course. <sighs> Anyhow, uh, th I just have to remind you, this episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by our friends at Apex Coffee Roasters. Apex Coffee, based in Waco, Texas. They search the globe for the best coffee beans available. They roast them right there in-house to unlock the natural aromas and flavors that make each cup an individual experience. You can order Apex Coffee online, and you should. I mean, look, if you haven't tried it yet, what are you waiting for? It's so good. Just just treat yourself already. Look, use my promo code, PINUP, right? You get 10% off. That'll at least cover shipping. P-I-N-U-P. Promo code PINUP at checkout to receive 10% off from ApexCoffeeRoasters.com. Hey, life happens especially this year. <laughs> Coffee helps. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. Hey, guitar nerds. Visit melcoleather.com to check out a variety of made-to-order leather guitar straps, or you can email melcoleather at gmail.com for custom work. Every Melco guitar strap is designed and built by hand by me. Check out my Instagram, at MalcoLeather, to see examples of my past work. And, as an added bonus, I offer free shipping in the U.S. for orders over $35. Visit MalcoLeather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O Leather.com. Do you have any idea what I do with my time? Let me tell you. It's consumed entirely by building custom guitars, repairing and restoring guitars, Making custom guitar pickups, I make uh, replica black guard, uh, Bakelite pick guards. These are all available online. You can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's more the repair side of things. To see what's going on there, I've got a price chart. I've got, you know, pictures, examples of work. I've got a custom pickup order form. I would love to help you with your guitar repair or restoration or uh, just, you know, whatever you got in mind. Shoot me an email. Whatever, give me a call. If you want to see the guitars I make, go over to pinupcustomguitars.com. That's P-I-N-U-P, like pinup girl. I always feel like I have to spell it. I probably don't. You uh, understand, I'm sure. Anyway, check it out, and uh, I'll see you there. Joining me on the phone is Scott Freelich. Scott, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good, it's great to talk to you. Um, I... I became aware of you because of something you're selling on eBay. Why don't you tell me about what you're selling there? Well, what I was selling on eBay that caught your attention was a guitar heat press iron. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I started to manufacture them after I realized I couldn't find a replacement for the one I had been using for years after the permanently attached power cord got torn out of it and I had to tear it apart to make it work again. Yeah. That's a tool that I've used for years, and uh, I couldn't find one either. I had to make my own, but there's uh, there's a few famous manufacturers that made those. Aria made one, and uh, did LMI make them for a while? I don't remember. LMI had them in their catalog. Somebody was making them for them. My original one was purchased from St. Louis Music. Yeah, St. Louis Music. And I don't understand. Maybe you can enlighten me. I don't understand why they're so hard to find. They they don't seem to be available anymore. I think there's probably two reasons. Reason one is they're really dangerous unless you're careful with them. They'll never get UL approval. Yeah. And reason two is that most people who have purchased them and don't understand the physics behind how they work have not had great success with them. And after a couple of failures by not understanding the process, they put them aside. I have seen several of them gathering dust on the shelves of repair shops. Really? That's so surprising to me because I use mine all the time. It's an invaluable tool. And basically, you know, for those who don't know, let me explain what the tool is. It's basically a flat a hollow piece of steel with heat elements inside, right? Well, yours might be flat and hollow, but mine, I usually use a a solid piece of aluminum that I drill out Mm -hmm. and put a cartridge heater in. So, and I center the cartridge heater in it, and mine is pretty much an improved copy of the one I had a ripped apart from St. Louis Music. Yeah. I predominantly use mine to straighten the necks on guitars that don't have adjustable truss rods, like vintage Martins or, you know, harmonies without adjustable truss rods, all kinds of guitars, really, that, you know, and and very nice guitars that don't have adjustable truss rods. If they get a warp in the neck, there's only a few ways that you can approach that situation. One situation that you can, uh, one way that you can do that is uh, start to plane away wood from the fingerboard, and I'm not a fan of that technique because you can't put wood back on once you take it off. No, I'm not a fan of that either. And the funny thing is I saw in my research to see what people were doing for fixing warp next. One of the instructions that I saw online uh, was somebody said, you remove the fingerboard, you put the neck in the back bo- a bow, and then you put glue the fingerboard back on. I oh, guess yeah. that's a functional way to do it. Well, in a way, I th- if, if we're dealing with a, a fingerboard glued on with hide glue, in a way, that's, right. what, that's, what the, uh, that's what the neck straightening iron does because it softens up the glue uh, and then it becomes re-glued, you know, with the back bow or however you want it, but it also it 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 also is using heat to manipulate the wood. And I've had I've had numerous people tell me that wood has a memory and trying to straighten out a piece of wood with heat won't work. And I completely disagree. Otherwise, 
how how would we band acoustic guitar sides? Well, here's the here's the thing. First of all, regarding high glue, I've seen some experiments that were done by Roger Simonoff regarding high glue. Mm-hmm. He doesn't break down high glue. Hot water breaks down high glue. Uh, but regarding the way the neck work, uh, the neck heat press works, at least what from I, what I've seen, because it'll work on a unitized solid maple neck as well as working on a neck with a fingerboard, mm-hmm. is that... Yeah. Right. The wood has a certain moisture content in it naturally, you know. Sure. And when you're pressing it, it is sort of like the what a curling iron does to a woman's hair. Yeah. When she's curling her hair. Now, I and the wood does have a memory because when I have found when I press necks, if I don't go a little further than where I think I'd like the neck to be. Yeah it'll spring back to where I don't want it to be. Sure. So there is some memory there. Sure. And you, I'm sure you found this too. Absolutely. You you have to almost yeah. o- overcorrect. Um but there's so right. many there's so many situations where this tool is useful. Uh there's a yep. there's a number of guitars that will, you know, you'll have a hump in the 3rd or 5th fret area. The rest of the neck is straight. Yep. The rest of the neck is straight yep. and you've just got one little section with a hump. Well, this heat press tool, this neck press, is just magic for that. And it's really magic for necks that are crowned, which means they have a bow in them that's reversed from what string tension would put in. Yeah. And no amount of string tension will put a bow in them. Yeah. You can put a bow in them. And the common problem on both eye neck instruments where they hope, uh, they hump up at the point where they're bolted to the body. Yeah. This will take care of that all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, I use it on acoustic guitars, electric guitars, I use it on yep. vintage fenders that are a solid piece of maple, you know, the neck is a solid yep. chunk of maple. It works. It works wonderfully. Yep. And it's a shame that they're they're not really commercially available, but I'm so tickled that you are selling them and uh it's the only one that I've been able to find that's commercially available. Um but uh let's I, I wanted. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about about your background. Where, how did you get to the point that you are that you're making a, a luthier tool like this? What, how did you get in, How did you get started in uh, in the guitar world? Well, I lived out in the middle of no place as a kid, and I was. I've been a bass player now since I've been like thirteen or fourteen, and. Every instrument that I bought in the, you know, little music stores that, that were around my house did not play in tune. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being an upright player, intonation became, was very important to me. And when I was buying these instruments that had frets on them that didn't tune, I had to figure out a system to make them play in tune. And I realized, you know, it would all involve making the octaves an octave apart on the instrument. And that's what got me started. It started in repair it all, and I was a ham radio operator at a very young age, so I understood electronics. Yeah, sure. And so I started fixing guitars for friends of mine uh, in the neighborhood, making the guitars tune and repairing their electronics. And probably I was 15 or 16, I was looking for a a fretless bass, and there were no fretless basses on the market at at that point. I'll be 65 this year. 
so my friends, my dad's friend had a mahogany headboard from a bed and a full shop in his basement. He said, well, we could build one of these things. So we went down to the basement and I built myself a mahogany fretless base that I could use. Hmm. And that's sort of what got me started. Wow. And so after, you know, going, going from my home in Lake Ronkonkoma, Long Island, moving up to Buffalo, New York, I started repairing instruments when I got there. And I hooked up with a guy named Ron Gordon, uh-huh. who only knew about acoustic guitars, and I knew about electric guitars. And besides us playing in bands together, he says, you know, I don't know anything about electric guitars. Why don't you repair all the electrics that come into my shop? And I'll teach you everything I know about acoustic guitars. I said, well, fine. Yeah. So sometime about 72 or 73, he says, I'm moving to Vermont to build dulcimers. You want to take over all my business? I said, sure. <laughs> so he had most of the guitar repair accounts for the shops in the city of Buffalo. And I started there. Hmm. And graduated from college in 76. Yeah. Was semi on the road playing and doing guitar repairs. And I realized I needed a real job that didn't take me away from my wife and that much. So I opened up Top Shelf Music in 1979 with uh, an eye on running a, you know, good guitar repair shop, which there wasn't one at the time other than what I was doing in Buffalo uh-huh. and selling used vintage instruments and uh, immediately went out and got the Martin Fender and Gibson warranty repair authorizations. And that kept me busy for 35 years. Well, that's great. That's great. And I think you mentioned to me that you recently retired. Is that right? I shut down my shop in, in 2014 since my wife had retired a few years before and we wanted to spend more time not being responsible. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, and is there an outlet that you're selling these neck uh, heaters, these straightening irons? Well, I originally just built one for myself as a prototype so I had a spare. And then I realized people were asking me yeah. to build them. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, reverse engineered mine, came up with improvements. And so I made a, ba- a first batch for all my friends who had been bugging me about getting one. And then I started getting more calls after that batch was done. So I built a second batch and I have some of those left and maybe I'll build a first, third batch if I get a call for those. Yeah, I hope you do. If people are interested, how can they get a hold of you? Well, the best way to get me is through, you know, email, and that's the email address you have, shelftop at AOL.com. And when they get the heat press, they also get the benefit of my, you know, close to 40 years of experience of using one. So it comes with a PowerPoint of showing you how to do the major operations and the whole set of instructions listing the theory of operation and, you know, guidance as to clamping pressure and temperature and all those kind of good things. That's great. Um, can you say that email address one more time? I didn't quite catch that. Maybe spell it out. Okay. Okay. S-H-E-L-F-T-O-P at AOL.com. Yeah, shelftop at AOL.com. 
Um, it's it's an invaluable tool in my shop, and I know it is in other shops. It's 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 strange to me that it's a tool that seems to have kind of fallen out of favor, and I think that it's for the reasons that you mentioned. It <laughs> it's a tricky tool if you don't know what you're doing, and you really can ruin a guitar. Uh, I've seen. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. You've got plastic in the fingerboard. You can set the plastic on fire. If you overheat a lacquer finish, it'll bubble. Yep. And it could go on fire too. You yeah. got to be careful, and you got to know what you're doing. I saw a guy in a shop I worked in in the '90s. I saw a guy ignite uh, some inlays that were. Yep. They must have been made out of nitrate or something. But boy, yep. they went up like flash paper. Boom. They sure do. Yeah, so you gotta uh, be so you gotta be careful. But, but uh, well, I have the thing I, I I have is I've figured out how much heat my particular units that I've designed built. Mm-hmm. I figured out the height of of the cowl that I need to space the heat press iron from the neck. Yeah, and I figured out what temperature the rear surface of the neck needs to be hmm. for it, my heat press to be effective and what it needs to be before I'm going to cause myself some grief. Yeah. And all of that information is in the information I supply with the heat presses that I make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way that I do it, I've got a, uh, a very thick piece of masonite wrapped in uh aluminum foil to use as okay. a, to use as a spacer between the neck and the heating iron and uh i found that to be effective for the for the one that i've built but i think ours are different slightly different designs i've just what i did is i made a uh, a pretty crude one out of a hollow tube that I got from Stuart McDonald, a steel hollow tube. Right, that, the standing tube that they th- make, yeah. That's exactly right, yeah, and I put some heating elements yeah. in there, but the one that you've made there is uh, very interesting. I might have to order one of those from you, um, because it, it seems to me that, uh, uh, does, that have a thermos, does that have a thermostat on it? I found a thermostat to be superfluous. Oh, yeah? Because you don't, you really, my units are designed, you'd have to leave it on a neck for two hours. Oh, yeah. For it to overheat a neck. See, mine gets way too hot. So I put, I turn it on mine for... Mine gets I, way too hot if you touch it. Yeah. But my spacers keep it almost almost an inch away from the neck. Oh, sure. And so, uh-huh. radiates, so that it radiates heat into the neck. Yeah, okay. If, did you get a chance to look at the PowerPoint that I sent? I didn't see that yet. Uh, I didn't get it yet. Yeah, because I emailed those to you yesterday. Oh, they didn't show up. Maybe they're in my spam folder. I'll have to check yeah, that out. Yeah, they probably are. Take a look. Take a look. If you didn't find them, I will send them again. Okay. And you will see the whole clamping process that I that I've developed. And there's other processes that I have too, like. I don't know how many upright bases I've had come to me where the fingerboard past the neck body joint is bowed up. Yeah. And in most cases, people either plane them down so they're too thin to be able to play in the upper register, or they pull the fingerboard off and replace the fingerboard. I have a heat pressing system that will repair that problem. Huh. Yeah. That's great. 
Um, there and are. And I also, Go like we were discussing when you first talked to me about this, um, I sent you a series of photos that are of my system for changing neck angles. Oh, yeah. And I know you have some questions about that. I didn't give you any documentation, written documentation on that. But I sent you uh, a series of photos of a Guild X170 that I was that I, that had a solid neck set that I was able to probably drop the action height by 464ths at the uh, at the body joint yeah. by using my heat press neck neck angle change system. Yeah, I remember now. You were saying that by with using using this tool, you are able to very slightly change the neck angle on a guitar without having to take it off. Uh, only, only if it's a very slight change. Is that right? Well, I mean, if you if you if you have the action height of twelve sixty four, I'm not going to get it down to four sixty four. Sure. But if you have an action height of eight sixty four, I can get it down to four sixty four without you... having to remove the neck. Wow. Now that's interesting to me because it seems to me that I'm trying to picture that, and it seems to me that uh, I I don't know how that it would change the angle. Um, I'm picturing the neck bending, but but I don't, I don't get how it changes the angle. But I'm so I'm really I'm, I'm anxious to see your documentation. That is really interesting. That's that's fabulous. Yeah, there's no documentation, but the clamping system. Yeah, is shown there, and if you experiment with it, you see it'll work. Hmm. Interesting. That is great. And yeah. you, so you were uh, an authorized repair station for a lot of different companies. How right. did? Did did you use this? Um, uh, did did you use this technique effectively? And were you able to bill them uh, for the work, or did they did they disagree with the methods? I know that Martin doesn't really talk about uh, straightening necks using a heat iron. No, no, Martin. But you know what? I had a I had a long relationship with Martin. I had you know Mike Longworth himself came and approved us as a repair shop, huh. and I, I was close friends with everybody there. And what they would do is they would sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Tell us how much you need for this repair. We'll come up with a coating for it and pay you. Hmm. Yeah. So they they were more interested in the results. Absolutely. Yeah, which makes sense to me. That absolutely makes sense to me. That's yeah, great. Their, their official line is heat presses don't work. Their unofficial line, if you hang out in the factory and talk to them, because I've 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 gone and spoke to them there several times, is make it work, and we'll pay you for it. Yeah. How strange! <laughs> I really find it strange that such an effective technique is almost like it's treated like it's black magic. Well, I, like I, I think the real problem is is that it, uh, here, here's, here's an example. When I bought my heat press from St. Louis Music, it came with an instruction sheet that basically said you put the heating iron above the fingerboard and you sit it on the counter that way. Mm -hmm. it, can't, it doesn't work. Heat yeah. rises. Yeah, right. And I've seen so many people who don't understand physics try <laughs> to do that way. I've talked to so many repairmen who say, 
oh, I can't use the heat chest. I sat it on the neck, and then I tried pressing it after that, after taking the, the iron off and letting it cool, and I said, no. Yeah. And then, or a lot of guys who use it above the neck, and once I've shown them how it works, and I always use, you know, there's always something around my shop that I can use as a demo. Yeah. And it doesn't take very long to do. I mean, it's... Uh, you you can show somebody a demo. You can come in, you come in, heat the neck, go out to lunch, come back next cooled when you're done, and and take it out and say, here, this is what it did. Yeah, yeah, I found it to be very effective, and I've used it on guitars that I was able to monitor for years, and uh, I found it to be you know a, a technique that held. You know, it, it did. It did hold, it, and it did work on, uh, you know, on vintage Fenders. I've used it on Rickenbackers. I've used it on Martins, and uh, it's definitely a valid technique. And you got to have the right tool, and you got to know how to use it. Right, but I, you know, I find that it holds in eighty-five percent of the situations. Uh huh. That's pretty good, though. Yeah. That's 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 pretty good. And I find it probably ninety-five percent effective when you do it. Yeah. But sometimes the guy will come back two years later and the problem is back. Yeah. But such an inexpensive process to offer somebody versus any other thing you could do right. to, to affect the repair that yeah. for the cost of doing it again every two years, it's nothing compared to what you would have to pay to get it done any other way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's also it, it it's a tool that I found useful in removing fingerboards as well to get the uh Oh it's great it's great for removing fingerboards. Um it's it's great for getting twists out of necks. Yeah, right. It's great, you know. It's uh, and like I said I love it for the typical problem that 90% of the uprights that you see have where the fingerboard is really bowed up starting at the body joint. It'll you know, you in that situation it's it's you basically have to use a belt clamp on the fingerboard and then you hang the heat press below the base when you sit the base on two chairs it puts the heat in there mm -hmm. and you you let it cool in, in, in with the belt clamp on it yeah take off the belt clamp neck straight wow yeah that's great yeah and like I said no planing you know once you're removing wood no. you, you can't put that wood back and I I I would much rather try doing a neck press before I resorted to something like uh, planing a fingerboard, especially when we're dealing with a vintage instrument where... Um, oh, absolutely. Once you remove wood, that's it. There's no going back. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. It's gone forever. Yeah. Scott... And it's probably my first tool to use in any situation where I can't get the neck straightened to where I need it to be, yeah. or any situation where the neck is solidly on the body and the action is too high. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to remove any material off the bridge because, again, same situation. Once you got you have a guitar that needs a neck set, if you trim the bridge down, then it needs a neck set and a new bridge. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you've compounded the problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you being part of the podcast here. Um, will you okay. uh, tell Tell people how to get a hold of you one more time. What's that email address? Okay, best way to get a hold of me is shelftop, S-H-E-L-F-T-O-P at AOL.com. That's great. That's great. Scott, thanks so much, man. I, I appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Eric. Okay, good talking to you, buddy.
Okay, you Well, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it, and thank you for participating, for those of you who do. And if you haven't, you should send in a question. Go to ericdaw.com, that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com, click the contact link, and you can submit your question there. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482, and I'll use your question as part of the show. Thank you to Scott Freelich for the great interview, and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you.